is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald and thanks for joining me for the Country Hour. Coming up for you today, the Forestry Industry Association of the NT wants a change to carbon rules, which would allow top-end forestries to generate and sell carbon credits. We're calling on the federal government to ensure that a fair, consistent rule set is applied so that um, their emissions reduction targets can be met and the massive shortage of, of timber supply in Australia can be met through uh, ensuring the best, the best values realised for new plantations. There is a brand new lithium miner listed on the stock exchange. It's got interests in the Northern Territory. Just how much did they raise in their initial public offering? You'll find out today. And the Juno Centre in Tennant Creek is encouraging students to come to school through teaching them to ride horses. Yeah, Juno helped me a lot with staying in school. Yeah, the only, yeah I came, came to school to do some work with my subjects. And so Juno, and with Juno Thursdays and Friday, it's helped a lot. Yeah, these young people are also learning plenty of other skills that might help them get a job in the cattle industry later on down the track. I'll tell you more before one thirty. Well, the first live export ship from Darwin to Vietnam left East Arm late last night. The Gelbray Express is now on its way to Haiphong. That's in the north of the country. Now, it was a bit of a slow year for exports to Vietnam last year with around 160,000 head sent from ports all around Australia. That was down from around 300,000 in 2020. So would this year be any better for the Vietnam trade? I had a chat with Tony Gooden from live export company Frontier about this first shipment out of Darwin and the year ahead. Oh, well, this is a, uh, the first consignment that we've done to Vietnam for some time from Darwin and we're able to put together uh, quite a, a good, good quality shipment of, of predominantly heavier bulls. The weight range will vary from about 440 kilos through to about 650 kilos. Um, mainly Brahman, Brahman Cross, and uh, that specification of animals particularly attractive to the customer that was supplying in Vietnam. How wide did you have to go to source those cattle? Uh, cattle are from the Northern Territory, uh, predominantly, I guess, around the northern quarter of NT, if you like. Some, we did get some slaughter steers from further down in, the, in central Australia, um, but predominantly the bulls have come up from the top end of the NT, yeah. So it's taken until late April to send the first cattle out of Darwin to Vietnam. Uh, why Why is it taking until now? Oh, look, really it was a, a combination of two things, but I guess the biggest thing was everything, the whole industry has been driven by, by cattle supply and pricing. In the last six months, um, the, so we've had the wet season, of course, which is come to an end now pretty well in the territory by the look of it but uh, so the availability of the suitable cattle wasn't really there until this time and secondly the market in Vietnam has been very stagnant for for a prolonged period driven you know largely by the I guess the COVID lockdown that they endured in September October November last year 
uh, which which suppressed demand up there. And at, at the time that came about, there was quite a few, uh, not only Australian cattle that had been imported through June, July, August, September last year, quite a few, quite a big inventory of Australian cattle in Vietnam. But on top of that, there was also the ship that came from Brazil, and a lot of Southeast Asian cattle from Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia cattle. Those cattle, a lot of those cattle would normally go through uh, to China, um, but due to COVID, the China Chinese government, I'm told, locked down the the Grey Channel very, very strictly. So, consequently, there was an oversupply of not only Australian and some Brazilian cattle, but a lot of Southeast Asian cattle trapped in Vietnam, and that's that's created an oversupply situation there until. You know, probably now they're just starting to work their way through the backlog of inventory that they've had. Given all those factors, uh, what's the outlook for this year? Yeah, I think the outlook is we're taking a fairly cautious approach and so are the importers up there. The market's extremely price sensitive. Um, the pricing's been prohibitive uh, of Australian cattle for, for the Viet- Vietnamese. Um, as you know, Indonesia's taken some cattle, but albeit you know, vastly reduced volumes to normal, but Vietnam's taken pretty well zero cattle. I mean, very small numbers between about October and now, maybe less than 10,000 from Australia, which was which was well back, 80 or 90% back on the same period last year. So it's the outlook, I think, is all subject to what happens with the price. As we know, there's been a you know, rain event in Queensland over the last four or five days which uh, time will tell what it does with the market there, but it's certainly not going to certainly hold values for a while. So my, my feeling is that there'll be some shipments go to Vietnam, um, but the volume this year will be very low compared to the last two or three years. There's certainly, I don't feel that there'll be regular shipments every month going to Vietnam this year. As you mentioned last year, there was that one shipment of bulls from Brazil to Vietnam. Are you expecting mm-hmm. any more Brazilian cattle? to go to Vietnam this year? I think there probably will be. Uh, it will depend a bit on what happens here in Australia. Um, uh, I think the preference is for them to get Australian cattle if the price is somewhat competitive with the Brazilian cattle. Um, the issues with the Brazilian cattle is that they have to bring in very large shipments, you know, in the order of sort of 14, 15,000 plus to make it viable. Um but that said, that if it, if they're there available at a competitive price, uh, I, I definitely think they'll import Brazilian cattle, and it wouldn't surprise me if there's another two or three shipments this year. And what would that mean for the Australian market if that happened? Well, that'll, that'll mean less cattle from Australia because they only want so many cattle there, and um, they're really just making a decision as to where they can buy the. Um, the animals from at, at, the, at the price that's most competitive for them to operate in their market environment. And, um, you know, water will find a level there, Dan. It's hard to predict, but, I mean, there's a lot of currency factors and all sorts of issues that contribute to where the price will be, what's going on with the, with the conflict in Ukraine and oil prices. Obviously, the freight is substantially more from, from South America to uh, Vietnam than it is from Australia. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of factors, but... And very difficult to predict, but my gut feel is that there'll be some, at least some shipments from Brazil to uh, Vietnam this year. Just on price, we saw some pretty 
stratospheric higher prices uh, earlier this year above the $5 a kilo mark for the Indonesian trade at least. Uh, mm. What are, what's the prices doing at the moment? Oh, well, we're getting into that dry season and as we know, in, particularly in the Northern Territory and if you look at, I guess if you look at the north western quadrant of the Northern Territory where we're quite a lot of cattle uh, that normally suit Indonesian trade sort of are, it, they the season finished off a bit earlier than expected, and uh, so there is a few numbers coming forward at the moment, and it's putting some downward pressure on the price because those numbers are coming forward at the same time as Indonesians are in their fasting month and heading towards the Labaran period. And traditionally, after that period, the, the demand for uh, for cattle generally is a bit more subdued within Indonesia. So at the What's been very high prices. A lot of the Indonesian importers are quite tentative about the sort of volume they're prepared to import at the moment because uh, there's a number of risks with um, in terms of you know how, how well they'll be able to sell those cattle, what price they'll be able to sell them at over the next you know three to four months. That is Tony Gooden. He is from live export company Frontier, which loaded a ship out of Darwin yesterday. It left East Arm last night. The Gelbray Express. It's now steaming out to Vietnam, the northern city of Haiphong. As we said there, it is the first shipment out of Darwin to Vietnam this year, um, and there wasn't any for the last couple of months of last year. So, yeah, it's been quite some time, and as Tony said there, expecting it to be a much slower year for the Vietnamese trade this year. It is 20 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Hello, my name's Stephen Rose and I have a nursery just north of Catherine and I love to listen to the Country Hour. Well, both major parties have committed to fund action on Gambergrass in the top end if they win the upcoming election. The Coalition says it would spend $450,000 over three years give that to Territory Natural Resource Management, which runs the Gamba Army to help tackle Gamba infestations in the NT. At the same time, Labor is promising $9.8 million over four years if it is elected to boost the Gamba Army's efforts to combat this weed. Invasive Species Council CEO Andrew Cox, he says Labor's funding would be a potential game-changer for managing Gamba in the NT. We know this gamba grass really needs more boots on the ground. Uh, we've seen some good work in Western Australia where we're hoping to eradicate it, but in Northern Territory, it's a it's it's quite widespread. It can go a lot further. It can cover it vast areas, actually up to 38 million hectares in Northern Territory. It's only sort of starting to reach that area. And so this funding is what the Gamba Grassroots Group has been pushing for and we're really positive to see Labor have to come come to the party on it. Is there anything missing from the announcement that you would have liked to have seen? Uh, look, it's a four-year announcement. It's going to allow the creation of 30 jobs. It's going to allow the focus both uh, on high um, significant areas like Kakadu National Park and more broadly across the Territory. So, look, it's actually what we presented to Labor and to the other parties. So we're really pleased they've accepted the problem we've identified around Gambergrass. And, um, you know, it's it's a really good 
start for the you know, the parties really committing to action on Gamma Grass. They're, re- they're finally recognising there's a serious problem, a national problem. Yeah, because um, the NT government's um, funded uh, the Gamba Army. Um, they've said they've put a, a million dollars into funding since the Gamba Army was created in 2020. Is this the first federal funding announcement that you're aware of? That's right. Yeah, even though Gamba Grass is a listed weed of national significance, it was even listed in the recent federal government threatened species action plan we haven't seen any money flow until now so obviously it depends on the outcome of the election um there was a commitment from the from the federal government actually um the prime minister made a reference to some funds as part of the uh election promises four hundred and fifty thousand dollars over four years but that certainly wasn't enough and there were very sketchy details about that so until now no there hasn't been any investment by the federal government in the problem of gamma grass yeah that's what we're aware of four hundred and fifty thousand over three years actually the next three years to combat gamma grass that's the coalition's promise ahead of this election what do you make of that commitment uh, like I said, we haven't seen much of the detail. Uh, we know that the scale of the problem is far larger than that. Uh, we understand there's a, a reference to Kakadu and Arnhem Land for that, but we know even just for uh, the, the Kakadu area, we need uh, at least five times that amount going into that area. So it's just simply not enough. And... Just in terms of uh, Labor's commitment, that $9.8 million over four years, that's a, a significant focus on one weed. Does this funding potentially overlook other weeds and invasive species and, and the problem of them that, that they pose to the Territory? And Gamba grass is a really significant threat and it is expanding, so we've got to halt the spread. It's an ecosystem transformer. Uh, because they are tall, grasses much taller than, you know, up to 10 times taller than the native grasses. They therefore carry really hot fires, fires that burn hotter than anything that the native plants do. And as a result, over time, you see the transformation of woodlands into grasslands and all these birds and animals, the frill-necked lizards and other things which depend on these woodlands and the trees are just simply losing their habitat. So it is a major, major threat. Um, and as I mentioned, it holds these really hot fires, which are not only a problem for uh, the natural environment and modifying, turning woodlands into grasslands, but they're also a serious safety risk for residential areas and remote communities. And uh, so even the firefighting effort, the cost of that is is increasing in some areas by up to seven times more once you have gamba grass infestations. But we're, t- we're talking about one and a half million hectares already uh, 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 covering Northern Territory with gamba grass, and it could be as much as 38 million hectares. So if we can nip this in the bud and we really stop its spread, we're going to save a lot of costs down the road. Andrew Cox, he is the CEO of the Invasive Species Council, and he was speaking there with Max Rowley about the big election commitments that are made by either major parties tackling gamba grass in the top end. If you want to read more, about those election commitments. There is a online story up right now. If you search for ABC Rural, you'll also be able to read there the story of Steve Dwyer. He is a NT Parks Ranger. He's done a lot of great work in the Mary River National Park tackling gamba.
Uh, he was named the Territory Natural Resource Management's Ranger of the Year earlier this year. Uh, as I said, you can read more on that story. If you just search for ABC Rural or ABC News, you'll find the yarn there. It is 14 minutes to one here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Uh, coming up for you soon, I'll tell you about a brand new lithium mining company which just listed on the Stock Exchange this week. First though, here's a tune by Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats. Hey Mama there by Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats. Well, a new lithium mining company with interest in the Northern Territory has listed on the Stock Exchange this week. It is called Lithium Plus Minerals and it commenced trading on Tuesday following an initial public offering which raised $10 million. According to the company, over $2 million of that came from a subsidiary of the world's largest electric vehicle battery manufacturer. Uh, Lithium, of course, is a very crucial product in batteries for electric vehicles. So Lithium Plus, it has exploration tenements right next door to Core Lithium's mine near Bino Harbour, which has just started construction on its mine. Core Lithium Plus, it's also got some tenements near Barrow Creek and out to the north east of Alice Springs. Uh, in a statement following uh, the listing on the Stock Exchange, the executive chairman of the company, Dr Bin Goal, said, we look now forward to delivering upon the substantial potential of Bino and our other key tenements. We are simply excited to get started on aggressively exploring this world-class package of lithium ground. Now, we have put in a call to the company to find out more. We will hopefully hear back soon. Now, just sticking with mining, the demand for rare earths is really on the rise at the moment because of this big push towards renewable energy, which is becoming stronger and stronger. Hoping to capitalise on that demand is WA company PVW Resources, which is about to start drilling out in the Tanami on the NTWA border. Executive Director George Bork, he says, now more than ever is a great time to be in exploration. It's the exciting time of being alive in this sort of exploration world. Having targets worthy of drilling. I mean, I think sometimes everyone expects every exploration company to naturally drill everything, but I think we take for granted sometimes that um, it's actually a milestone to have such significant drill targets and then to actually have it all coordinated, organised to recruit geologists, to have all the equipment, the XRFs and a whole host of all of that's, you know, it's, it gets exciting as you get towards that drill starting. The two key elements in this mix is dysprosium and terbium, um, which are a key ingredient in the permanent magnets. And how is demand in that market at the moment? Demand's increasing. I mean, one thing we've seen this time around is a couple of key aspects. One of them is the fact that, you know, we are seeing the strength of real sales in the EV space. So, you know, we're seeing demand growing continually in that front coupled with all the others wind turbines still growing as a as an industry robotics is becoming bigger and bigger in in automating manufacturing and the like and then you've also got the challenges associated from a geopolitical perspective so a lot more emphasis on looking at alternative supply chains the relative point here is china china dominates the rare earth space um, linus is obviously one of the big non-chinese suppliers but 
you know, with what's happening in the world, there is much more emphasis on looking at alternative supply chains to give, um, you know, logistic supplies um, alternatives. So what's the long-term plan here? What's your sort of timeline that you're working to to get this project off the ground? Yeah, so look, I mean, the real key step is um, the expiration phase. So we'll be in a much better place at the end of this year to probably define and, and provide timelines for, okay, how does this step out, if you like? I mean, you know, we're early stage. We're excited what we have on the ground. We've got a you know fantastic uh, canvas to work from. Our results we get from the drilling programs of 2022 will really provide the foundation of where we go to. There's also been some funding announced for the Tanami Road, the ceiling of that. What sort of difference will that make for you out there? Oh, huge. Look, um, you know, Browns Range was a, a very remote project and, um, you know, we had our challenges and the state government supported that project by just getting that to be a better um, uh, unsealed road um, to have, um, and I believe it's up to $600 million when you compare the Western Australian component of the budget as well as the uh, Northern Territory side. That's a significant bit of infrastructure. For our project, I mean, that goes within 20 kilometres of where we'll be drilling uh, next month. So I know that's going to take time to actually seal it, but our timelines are likely to align that should there be a project, should there be something that we'd want to develop at the Tanami, that road's going to be just an amazing asset for us. It'll um, have significant impact on the economics of that project. George Bork, he's the Executive Director with PVW Resources. He was speaking with Steph Sinclair. It's five minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Now, you've likely heard that China has once again plunged into another COVID lockdown in a number of its cities. And like previous lockdowns, it's already having some significant flow-on effects. Shipping for agricultural machinery and bulk commodities, it's been delayed for the best part of two years. But this latest lockdown has created a global backlog, which makes previous delays look insignificant. Luke Radford, he spoke with Paul Zalai, the director of the Freight and Trade Alliance, to learn more. Look, we've still got major congestion in in ports around the world. Um, You know, you you mentioned China, but also still off the... um, off the coast of the, of USA, uh, Los Angeles, um, still multiple container vessels there trying to deal with the volumes into the US. And then again, as you mentioned, China, you know, the rest of the world seems to have moved on from the lockdowns with COVID, but China is still going for this uh, zero policy and that's having some significant effects. We've we experienced it over the last few years with China. The We had, the, obviously, the global lockdowns back in 2020. In 21, we had Yantian and a partial close of um, Ningbo. But now it's probably worse again. Um, Shenzhen, Tianjin, Shanghai are all suffering terribly now with these lockdowns. When you talk about congestion in those ports, I suppose for someone that doesn't have a great understanding of the freight industry, can you explain what does that physically look like? Well, again, we're quite fortunate here in Australia. Although we've experienced congestion here, we don't see vessels off our coast uh, mounting up. Uh, the shipping lines will do like slow steaming to make sure that they reach a port and can get service rather than anchoring offshore. Off the, the west coast of the USA, for example, it's not uncommon to see over the last couple of years anywhere between about 40 and 100 container vessels just queuing up waiting to get into port. 
Now, that's not just an issue for the US. That then has flow-on effects for the global trade. And and now we're seeing a very similar picture off the coast of China, you know, with Shanghai in particular. And we are a very small global world, really, when it comes to shipping. Everything has a flow-on effect. So we saw the issue with the, um, the blockage of the vessel uh, and the Suez Canal. Well, that sort of fades into insignificance with the issues that we're seeing here now at some of the major ports. So we talk about the flow-on effects. At the moment, what's, I suppose, the current state of global trade? Is is there a number that you can give to sort of illustrate the delay at the moment, or is it all variable? Oh, look, it's all variable. And I think that, you know, the shipping lines will adjust accordingly. So they, they don't want to have their vessels at anchor just sitting idle. That doesn't help anyone. So we're seeing the shipping lines adjusting on the run and they um, will bypass ports like Shanghai and and even have blank sailings where they might just miss a voyage altogether just to avoid adding to that extra congestion. Now, that doesn't help importers and exporters. So any of your listeners who are waiting to buy their new lounge or get any other goods or services, you know, you could expect a further extensive delay. And then obviously trade is two ways. So our regional exporters will also be feeling the pinch as well. Has a particular type of shipping been particularly impacted? Yeah, the, the bulk hasn't been too bad. Our, our focus is more on the containerized shipping, and that's really been an issue now for the last three years. And, you know, in the lead up to the pandemic and then the last couple of years, just with the surge of imports, you know, again, we when you cast your mind back to March 2020 and we started to hear about this virus and lockdowns, I don't think anyone really understood what it was going to mean. Um, you know, we thought maybe we're going to go into a global recession or even a depression. But but as it turned out, with all the stimulus funds and with everybody having still quite a significant disposable income, everybody bought things. In terms of shipping, it just went through the roof and we still haven't really recovered from that situation. And these events that we're seeing now in China just, um, just add to the problems. Paul Zalai, he's the director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and he's also the secretary of the Australian Peak Shippers Association. He was speaking there with Luke Radford. That's it for the Country Hour for this half. Uh, There's still plenty more to come after the one o'clock news. Speak to you in five minutes. Hi, my name is Remy. I'm working at a tropical fruit farm out in the rural area of Darwin. We're a mango and dragon fruit grower with three different varieties. They're red, white and yellow. And you're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio. And thanks for tuning in to the program this Wednesday lunchtime, or you might be catching us later via our podcast. You're with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Still to come for you this Arvo, we're going to head down to the Juno Centre in Tennant Creek. It's a little training centre just on the outside of town that works with high school students to train them up with skills in the ag industry and riding horses. Yeah, Juno helped me a lot with staying in school. Yeah, the only, yeah, I came, came to school to do some work with my subjects. And so Juno, and with Juno Thursdays and Friday, it's helped a lot. Yeah, it's a good story. I'll bring you more on that before 1.30. But right now, let's head to the Weather Bureau. We've got Billy Lynch on deck today. G'day, Billy. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. That's the way. Um, now, we've had a, a bit of rain around the Territory uh, last night. What were the biggest falls? Yeah, well, the biggest ones were actually around the Darwin area. So McMinn's Lagoons reported 
42 millimetres, uh, the Botanic Gardens 19 millimetres and Wagite Beach 12 millimetres, uh, as well as 11 or so out at Elizabeth Valley, um, about 4 millimetres around Noonamar as well. Um, not too much outside the Darwin region, but yeah, Point Stewart picked up uh, about 2 millimetres, Jabbery 3 millimetres. Um, but since 9am we've had some some more rainfall as well, um, with the, the best one being up on Millingimby um, with uh, 67 millimetres just since 9am. Wow, that must be a good storm there. Um, we've got a text in from a listener who, uh, I guess they want to know if there's much more to come. Dave asks, is all this rain going to be the last slap in the face from the wet season? <laughs> um, the last slap in the face. We're getting certainly getting towards the last few slaps. Um, we've got a bit of a humid end to the wet season, so these showers and thunderstorms are expected to sort of continue for the next few days, mainly around the, the northern top end. Um, as we know, yeah, the dry season beginning on Sunday, um, and it does look like we will get a bit of a drier um, surge push into the top end over the, the long weekend as well, but... Uh, saying that, it's still going to be bringing in some Gulf Line showers. So there will still be a bit of rain, particularly around the eastern and the northern top end and maybe around the Darwin region as well. But you know, as a whole, across inland parts of the top end, we're definitely moving to a dry period over the weekend. So maybe from that perspective, yeah, there's not too many rain days left okay so if you're camping around Catherine this long weekend uh you might not need to bring the fly to your tent you'll be right well you'll probably be all right i, I would think around the Catherine region but if you're going to go anywhere further north like say the adelaide river region i reckon a fly would still be a good idea yeah okay and uh the next few days in the barclay in central australia how are things looking uh, look, just warming up, I guess. So temperatures a few degrees above average um, because we've got some northerly winds uh, ahead of a trough that's going to push into the southwest um, tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, apart from the temperatures sort of being in the low to mid 30s across the Buckley, not really expecting too much rain, um, but just there will be some isolated showers and thunderstorms developing across that uh, eastern Barkley, Queensland border region the next couple of days, but not too much rain in it, I'm afraid. Um, and, yeah, just the other thing, Dan, um, as that trough that I mentioned sweeps across southern NT, we'll bring a sort of patchy uh, cloud band across southern parts of the Territory too, so that could bring some, some rain as well during Friday and Saturday. Okay, how how much could be in that, that cloud band? Well, look, um, around 5 to 10 millimetres potentially. Um does look like the better falls will be over South Australia, um, but that's sort of Curtin Springs, Culga region, you know, 5 to 10, even up to 20 millimetres on sort of a best-case scenario. But, um, yeah, elsewhere, I guess that's sort of just that southern Lassiter um, region. Once you get to about Wataka, northwards, probably not expecting too much rain. Um, and then the Simpson district, um, yeah, maybe just a few millimetres, but, but better falls towards the South Australian border.
Yeah, okay. And just looking a little bit um, further forward, Alice Springs might get to some single-digit minimums early next week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is quite a strong high-pressure system pushing in over the weekend. Um, So, yeah, initially dropping the maximums. And then once that cloud band clears early next week, um, yeah, really good potential for some, some cool mornings as well. Okay. And just lastly, Billy, um, there's going to be a bit of an update to the Darwin Airport weather radar. What can you tell us there? Yeah. So so firstly, just you know, people probably know there's two radars. The, the main one we use is out at Berrima, but we do have a, a backup one um, at Darwin Airport, and it's that backup one that's getting an upgrade. Um so quite an extensive upgrade. We're expecting it to be out of action for up to eight weeks or so, beginning next week. But once it's back up and running, it's going to be um, a much more valuable backup to the Berrima radar. So um, we'll have Doppler radar capability, which allows us to, to measure the wind speed um, from the radar um, and just generally an improved quality um, of the rain images that we're getting Okay, but for the public logging on to the bomb website, uh, it'll be business as usual. Yeah, like you'll still um, get the Berrima radar, which is the, our primary radar. So during that outage, um, it's not going to affect the the radar images from Berrima. So there will still be radar coverage continuing during that um, up to eight week outage of the Darwin Airport radar. Very good. All right, um, thanks for the update, Billy. Thanks, Dan. That's uh, Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. It is 12 minutes past one. Some shows are informative. Others are entertaining. But only one show is a bona fide public service. Unprecedented in modern times. The team at The Weekly watches all the news so that you don't have to and puts it all together again so you know everything you need to and nothing you don't. Story after story. The Weekly. You give us 30 minutes, we'll give you the week. The new season of The Weekly. Some assembly required. Back Wednesday, April 27 on ABC TV or log into stream on ABC iView. Well, the Forestry Industry Association of the NT is calling for a change to a carbon rule, which it says is preventing top-end industries from generating and selling carbon credits under what's known as the carbon rule. Uh, forestry plantations that receive over 600 millimetres of annual rainfall cannot register for a carbon project. So that pretty much rules out uh, any of the top-end forestry plantations. Frank Miller, he's from the Forestry Industry Association, uh, he says his organisation's members, they would like to see that rule changed. What the organisation's calling for is a lifting of what they call the water rule. Now, uh, under the carbon trading um, rules for plantations and forestry in general in in, um, Australia is that um, a uh, a number of parameters have been set to enable participation in the emission reduction fund and uh, one of these I guess is uh, um, they're they're based on a national scale and primarily from the early days uh, the the rule of being able to participate in carbon trading in areas that um, are less that receive less than 600 mils of rainfall um, were focused on um, I guess, motivation of ensuring that um, high-quality agricultural land was um, not planted uh, in trees. Um, And 
of course, the, the perverse outcome of that that approach is that um, if you apply that to places like the Northern Territory, um, what you'll see is um, eligibility of the trees to be planted somewhere south of Tennant Creek. And um, anyone who's left uh, the Darwin area and headed south, they'll realise that um, south of Tennant Creek isn't particularly good um, tree growing area. So um, the Forest Industry Association has worked pretty hard over the last 12 months to to really focus on, um, you know, enabling uh, new new plantation um, uh, opportunities for Northern Australia through um, looking at um, eligibility criteria for carbon, because um, we all like to, to squeeze as much value out of um, anything that we do on the land. And um, if we're growing timber for um, whatever purpose, whether it be for pharmaceutical oils right through to furniture timber and construction timber. We want to make sure that uh, yeah, every other, um, every other opportunity to um, get more value, and that includes carbon, um, is realised. And, and so without... So at the moment, uh, at the moment no, no forestry operator in the top end can actually apply for carbon credits, for generating carbon credits under the rules. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, until just recently, um, uh, all existing plantations in the Northern Territory were not eligible, not just because of the water rule, but for other reasons. Now, we've we've been able to lift those restrictions and those specific exclusions, but we're still unable to um, participate or new entrants into the industry are able to participate because of this water rule. So we're calling on the federal government to ensure that, you know, a fair, consistent rule set is applied so that um, their emissions reduction targets can be met and, um, you know, uh, the, the, the massive shortage of, of timber supply in Australia can be met through uh, ensuring the best, the best values realised for new plantations and, and other forestry operations. How would the Northern Territory forestry industry benefit if it would be able to uh, enter these sort of carbon projects? Uh, so what we'd see, Dan, is you know potential for um, pastoral lease owners to to look at diversifying their income streams through um, greenfield plantings on previously cleared land. Where um, they say, "Oh, look, you know, we know, we understand that up here we can integrate um, grazing within plantations. Um, so they then would be able to plant trees to provide shade and um, graze their graze their animals underneath, produce some timber um, for the long long term income, and 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 collect some carbon checks along the way. So that's that's um, one example." The other examples down the industrial, um, you know, uh, institutional investment path, where greenfield um, plantation um, establishment has has stagnated over the past few years, and that's because um, more favourable jurisdictions like New Zealand and um, other international jurisdictions have um, provided those opportunities for carbon to be included in in timber uh, commercial timber production. So. I guess there's two examples where we potentially would see new investment um, given um, this water rule being lifted. And the sort of forestry that's grown in the top end, does it store much carbon? 
it certainly um, stores carbon because the trees grow well. Um, we we do have a different regime up here whereby um, the trees are stocked at a lower level to to fit with the harsher growing conditions. But um, there's certainly um, a fairly compelling um, financial and economic argument to have um, carbon included in that because of the the carbon credits that these plantations do generate. Frank Miller, he is the chair of the Forestry Industry Association of the Northern Territory, calling there for a change to rules about carbon farming, what they're calling the water rule. So currently, forestry plantations that get over 600 mil of annual rainfall, they just can't register for a carbon project. I'd like to see that changed. It is 19 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. Hello, my name's Jay. I'm a bull runner at Wayville Station. Since today I work in seminaries, I work at Monogini, Kalani, Yadi, Man Sanford, Envoy, and Limbanyo, all over in all this country and everywhere in Northern Territory. You listen to a country hour. Thanks for that, Jay. Up in a moment, we're going to be heading down to the Juno Centre on the outskirts of Tennant Creek, where high school students have been learning how to ride horses and do all sorts of things. I'll bring you that story after Casey Musgraves. Well, students in Tennant Creek are getting some hands-on skills preparing themselves for work in the ag industry. The Juno Centre is part of the Tennant Creek High School and it offers a range of industry-based courses to put towards certificates certificates in agriculture. Hugo Ricard-Bell visited the school and caught up with student Jojo Johnson. My name is Joshua Johnson. I live here in Tennant Creek. I go to Tennant Creek High School and I'm 17 years old. Jojo, can you tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your family? I grew up in Tennant Creek. My dad is from Lake Nash, but my mum stays in Alice. i got a little brother back in Alice with my mum. I just live here with my nana and my uncles. Um, has any of your other family finished year 12? Only one, my uncle. My youngest uncle, uh, he finished 2017. Yeah, so I'll probably be the second to finish in my family. And what does that mean to you? Uh, it means a lot, pushing through from year seven, giving it all I got and just coming to school doing work, come with mates, enjoy school. You said pushing through from year seven. Is, is that hard? Do you, is, it, is it hard for a bloke like you to, to keep going like that? Kind of, but at least, at least you got friends there to keep you company while you're at school, catch up with some mates, do works together, like old Boyd, Stanley, Littrell, Jaquin, a couple of friends out there, they're pretty good. We all do Juno. Yeah, we went from primary school, as Stanley said. We were good mates. Boyd knew him from year since primary school, really. Uh, Jake, when I met him two years back, but we're a good friend. Same as Netral. His brother, Nathan, at Kangaroo Island. Yeah, he finished school last year. Why do kids, or why do you think some of your friends haven't finished school? Uh, probably just doing bad stuff in town, like following the wrong blogs, 
with that and like walking the streets and not participating in school. But yeah, like just not coming to school and not listening to family when they tell you to sleep and stuff. But yeah, they just make their own choices and do wrong things. Did you almost not finish school? Was there a moment in your life where, you know, you uh, almost decided not? Yeah, back in year 10, I probably got angry with schoolwork and stuff. Like, I didn't want to keep continuing doing work. Like, I got real pissed off with it. But then I, like, re regenerate and then started to keep coming to school and continuing. My mate told me to come to school. Yeah. And was Juno a big part of you staying in school? Yeah, Juno helped me a lot with staying in school. Yeah, the only, yeah, I came, came to school to do some work with my subjects. And so Juno, and with Juno, Thursdays and Friday, it's helped a lot. What's it mean doing a course like this to you? Oh, it means a lot. Come out here, try new things. Instead of staying back at school, it's not like studying with stuff at school. But yeah, it's a right idea. Tell me a little bit, bit about uh, why you wanted to do this course. I did it. I didn't really know about this course until my mates told me. Uh, I was at school at first doing work until my mate told me that oh, it's fun at Juno. There's lots of things you can do, like horses, working with cattle, doing new things, you know. What's your favourite bit about station work? What's your favourite job to do here? Oh, working with new horses, breaking them in, doing fences, yeah. Is it hard breaking in a horse? Tell me about that. Oh, it's kind of hard if the horse doesn't listen, but like you have to force it to do stuff. Like if a horse doesn't listen, like you just move him around a little bit, probably pat him if he did something okay, yeah. How does doing a course like this, and at the end when you graduate, how's that gonna make you feel? Oh, I'll feel proud that I did something before finishing school so that I can take it out to the big world. Yeah. <laughs> that is Jojo Johnson there. He's a student at Tennant Creek High School. He's in year 12 and he was there at the Juno Centre speaking with our reporter Hugo Ricard-Bell. Time now to head to the markets. Let's see what's happening at the Dublin South Australia cattle markets with John Traeger. Good afternoon. Numbers increased this week as agents offered 120 live weight and open oxen cattle and 125 open oxen calves. Quality was generally good and competition was steady from the usual array of buyers with prices generally firm on a fortnight ago. Vila steers sold to 588 cents as Vila heifers ranged from 538 to 572 cents. Yearling steers ranged from 432 to 580 cents, as yearling heifers sold from 536 to 562 cents. A good selection of grain steers sold from 480 to 508 cents, with grain heifers selling from 400 to 490 cents. Cows sold to 274 cents, with bulls selling from 320 to 495 cents. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John. Now, as we heard yesterday on the program, there is a brand new market indicator for the live export trade. It is known as the LEPI, and it is an average sale price of male feeder cattle purchased by exporters for shipment from Darwin to Indonesia 
over the past fortnight, and it is currently sitting at $4.98 per kilo. And that is all we have time for on the Country Hour today. Thanks a lot for joining me. If you're listening live or via the podcast, I'll speak to you at 12.30 tomorrow. Take it easy. Music.